This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Strategies for Critical Asthma by Dr. Elliot Melendez. Please note that in this video we will be following the guidelines used at Boston Children's Hospital. Some of this information may need to be modified based on the equipment, guidelines, and practices in place in your institution. My name is Elliot Melendez. I'm a pediatric critical care physician in the medicine critical care program here at Children's Hospital Boston. Uh, my talk today will be on ICU-specific therapies in children with critical asthma. I would like to focus the agenda on the use of um, the specific therapies, continuous albuterol, steroids, magnesium or heliox, terbutaline, the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, specifically in children with asthma, as well as managing the intubated or ventilated patient with a brief discussion on the inhaled gases. Medications. Most of the patients who are admitted to the ICU will already be on continuous albuterol. The typical dose is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. With this, but we use standard weight-based dosing here at Children's Hospital. The initiation and termination of al continuous albuterol is mostly dependent on the continued presence or absence of wheeze. When it comes to steroids, we use one to two milligrams per kilogram per day for the patient who is in status asthmaticus, not in the ICU. However, most ICU patients will routinely get one milligram per kilogram every six hours with a max dose of 60 milligrams per dose. There is a paucity of literature for the efficacy of this high dose, but it is considered the standard of care. IV magnesium sulfate has been used in the treatment of critical asthma, but the mechanism is unclear. We believe that there is smooth muscle relaxation that occurs by blocking the calcium uptake. Several studies, including a meta-analysis published in 2005 in Archives of Disease in Childhood, has shown favorable effects on the reduction of hospitalization. You can consider a single dose of magnesium sulfate as an adjunct pending the steroids effect. However, there are no ICU studies regarding the repeated use of magnesium outside the emergency department setting. When inhaled albuterol uh, therapy fails, we recommend you treat systemically. An intermittent dose of an intramuscular dose of terbutaline or epinephrine can be used and should be followed by inhaled albuterol. It tends to work within five minutes. Do realize that terbutaline can peak in 30 to 60 minutes. If you are concerned about anaphylaxis, you could consider epinephrine uh, instead. You do need to monitor for any systemic side effects and risks of extravasation. When you choose to do continuous terbutaline as your systemic beta agonist therapy, you want to administer a bolus followed by an infusion and titrate that to effect. Typically, we bolus with 10 uh, micrograms per kilogram and then start an infusion at 0.4 micrograms per kilogram per minute. We will increase the dose by 0.2 micrograms every 30 to 60 minutes based on that effect. Now, the effect that we are seeking is unclear and that there's very little, little literature to support the titration of terbutaline. And we realize that wheezing in and of itself may not be enough. You may want to titrate by work of breathing, respiratory distress, or if there's poor air movement. 
realize that as you wean terbutaline, the half-life can be long, up to one and a half to four hours. So a clinical change may not be noted until several hours after a change is made. All the beta agonists have side effects, regardless of the form, whether it's inhaled or IV. They include tachycardia to the extreme of supraventricular tachycardia, and they all can result in hypokalemia. Realize that these side effects are higher when given intravenously. They include a systolic hypertension, diastolic hypotension, and potentially a metabolic acidosis. Several studies have been uh, are done in order to look at the cardiac toxicity associated with IV beta agonists. And some studies have shown that the uh, children can have myocardial injury as a result of IV terbutaline. A study published um, from authors here at Children's Hospital in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2000 by Chang et al. tried to assess the relative risk of the cardiac toxicity of intravenous terbutaline. He found that troponin was elevated in 10% of patients and the CK was elevated in 62% of patients. 20%, 20 of the patients, 69%, had electrocardiograph changes consistent with ischemia. When you further look into the study, you realize that the troponin elevation only occurred in patients who had greater than 72 hours on terbutaline and were mechanically ventilated. Did not occur in patients who were not mechanically ventilated. 19 of those 20 had the EKG changes prior to the initiation of terbutaline. And there was no clinically significant cardiac toxicity recognized. This suggests that the use of terbutaline, despite having some evidence of chemical leak of enzymes or EKG changes, does not translate into a clinically significant adverse event. We do tend to check troponins, CKs, and lactates and EKGs on patients with terbutaline routinely, but we're not clear what to do with the elevated result if the patient still needs intravenous terbutaline therapy. Other therapies that are considered an asthma, some people will, will consider giving antibiotics, using theophylline, using Heliox, or non-invasive pressure ventilation. Uh, uh, or in invasive ventilation, and we will go into these further. Obviously, if there is an infiltrate on the chest x-ray, it is appropriate to administer antibiotics. Uh, some believe that severe asthmatics may be um, either colonized or have concomitant atypical pneumonias. However, if a patient is critically ill or worsening, antibiotics should not be withheld in the regardless of what's on the x-ray, considering the severity of illness. Theophylline or aminophylline used to be very commonly used in asthma before our current therapies. It should no longer be routinely used. There's a very narrow therapeutic window. There's side effects such as fever, excitability, or even seizures. In patients who are already on these therapies as part of their maintenance therapy for asthma, there may be a role in maintaining those levels therapeutic. So you should check a level and correct it if it's low. But again, routine use is not recommended. Heliox. There's been a lot of controversy about the use of Heliox in asthma. In 1996, published in Chess, Carter showed that in 11 cases where Heliox was used in moderate to mo moderate asthma, there was no benefit. In 2003, a meta-analysis by Ho, published in Chess, showed that there was a small improvement in the peak expiratory flow uh, uh, rate percent predicted in severe exacerbations but it was only effective when it was used early, and there was no difference after one hour of therapy. And in 2003, a Cochrane review showed that there was no evidence to support its use. 
subsequent other studies have shown that heliox has no um, efficacy in reduction in hospitalization. However, some people have considered using heliox as a bridge prior to intubation or as equipment is being prepared in hopes of preventing intubation. There's no data that heliox prevents intubation or improves length of stay or mortality. What, we, what do we do at Boston Children's Hospital? If you're greater than two years old and you have a history of asthma and you've been on continuous albuterol for more than four hours and not improving, or in fact even worsening, we will consider a trial of heliox in order not to improve gas exchange, but to allow more distal disposition of albuterol. We will uh, use heliox in 80 to 20 uh, percent cylinders, and we can add oxygen to titrate an FiO2 no higher than 40 percent. There are contraindications to the use of heliox, which include too high of a need of oxygen um, in order to maintain a saturation greater than 92 percent, or if they have an air leak, like a pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum. Finally, some of the younger kids can't tolerate the mask, so therefore it would be a contraindication to its use. Non-invasive ventilation. What do you do when all else fails? And this is where you have that very sick asthmatic. There's really no clear data on what are the indications for when to pr um, provide invasive ventilation in an asthmatic or when you, you intubate them. Many studies have looked at clinical appearance or concern for fatigue. We try to avoid intubation in asthmatics if possible, um, unless there's clear respiratory failure or an impending respiratory arrest. This may be where non-invasive support, such as BiPAP, may be better than invasive modes. Unfortunately, there's no randomized controlled trials in patients with asthma. Akinbola, in, uh, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2002, found that three children who had hypercarbic respiratory failure with asthma had improvements in their pH, their PCO2, and respiratory rate, suggestive that non-invasive support may be beneficial. Thill, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2004, looked at severity of breathing scores, accessory muscle use, a wheezing score, a dyspnea score, and a, what described as a total asthma score, and showed that in all patients where um, uh, non-invasive support was used, they had improvements in their score. Unfortunately, in the Thiel study, there were only 20 patients, and they only did uh, treat it with BiPAP for about two hours. They also did not report any data on the severity of illness of the patients, if there were any additional therapies administered, or whether there was a change in therapy once BiPAP was administered. There also was no data as to whether the asthma scores that they used worsened after they stopped using the BiPAP in those, that two-hour period. So it still leaves a little bit of uh, information about whether there is true efficacy However, if it's better and avoids invasive ventilation, it may have a role. It's a study published in 2011 by Williams et al. in Intensive Care Medicine that actually initiated BiPAP within the emergency department. There was a slight selection bias in the patient population because the patients were uh, started on BiPAP based on the physician's discretion. But patients who were, had continuous albuterol and were placed on BiPAP in an ED observation unit they found that in 64 of the kids of the 71 children, they were able to come off the BiPAP in the emergency department and not require admission to the ICU, which is where patients' disposition would normally be if they required BiPAP. Some were able to come off their IV terbutaline. Unfortunately, they did not report on what their observation length of stay was, which may suggest that the patient stayed a long time in the emergency department pending disposition. Some patients who get non-invasive positive pressure may require sedation for anxiety. 
we recommend using Heliox along um, with a BiPAP if they have increased worker breathing, um, especially if this is very if their worker breathing is severe, along with the terbutaline. Endotracheal intubation. So what happens with a patient who fails non-invasive therapy or fails IV terbutaline? At this point, the patient may have gotten sick enough that they do require invasive ventilation or intubation. One thing to realize up front is that most of the complications that occur around asthma occur around the process of intubation. And being respectful of the adverse events that can happen or being knowledgeable can prevent uh, patient harm. So when you are preparing to intubate the asthmatic, you actually have to prepare for a cardiac arrest. And you have to have medications that are ready uh, for that process that, because that event could happen. You also have to be aware that pneumothorax can happen at the time of intubation, and you need to be ready for an emergent needle thoracentesis. And you also have to be ready that hypotension will occur. Why do these complications happen? Why does a cardiac arrest happen? There could be poor cardiac output that occurs because there's poor filling as you transition to positive pressure. You could develop pulmonary leak syndromes like pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum, or subcutaneous emphysema that can lead to the cardiac arrest or you can have a um, uh, airway obstruction from aggressive bag um, endotracheal ventilation. The hypotension can be multifactorial. The positive pressure is going to decrease venous return. That'll create, with the hyperinflation, that'll cause direct atrial compression. The, with the worsened hyperinflation, you will have insufficient time to exhale, again, which worsens the uh, filling. The patient could have a relative hypovolemia they've been working hard to breathe, they've been breathing fast, maybe not eating, maybe not drinking, and they could have a relative hypovolemia. In addition, the beta-2 agonist that we've been providing throughout their course can actually lead to peripheral smooth muscle relaxation. Remember that the beta-1 effects makes the heart pump faster and makes it pump harder, therefore you get a nice systolic blood pressure. But beta-2 activation causes smooth muscle relaxation in the lungs, which is your intended effect, but can do so as well in the peripheral smooth muscle. Finally, you're going to augment um, some of these uh, muscle relaxations with the sedatives and your, any muscle relaxation you would use. And all that could lead to hypotension. When you go to premedicate an asthmatic, you should use atropine or glycopyrrolate. You want to diminish secretions, especially if you're planning to use ketamine as your sedative agent. There's some literature in adults of using lidocaine to help either smooth muscle relaxation or blunt the bronchospastic response to intubation. However, there's no clinical data that supports this practice. As part of your premedication and asthmatic, because they can have relative hypovolemia, they should all receive an IV fluid bolus um, to uh, support the intravascular volume. We actually recommend starting dopamine peripherally prior to the intubation, even in the setting of normal um, blood pressure, or at least have it in line. And this is to help support the cardiac output during the process of transitioning from a negative pressure ventilation spontaneous breathing to positive pressure ventilation. Ketamine is the recommended agent of choice during intubation. It does have bronchodilatory effects um, as it releases norepinephrine. There's a potential added benefit, in um, questionable added benefit in patients who are already receiving IV beta agonists. At this point, you already have them on maximal intravenous beta agonist therapy. So the potential small effect of ketamine may not um, uh, uh, may not be, been, um, may not be, exist. Do realize that the side effects of ketamine are significant. You can get laryngospasm, you can get increased secretions, and you can get worsened tachycardia. And these things may impact your decision to use ketamine or not. 
in, anytime you intubate an asthmatic, you want to provide adequate sedation and analgesia pre-intubation. Realizes that realize that large changes in thoracic pressure can lead to leak syndromes. So the patient needs to be adequately sedated and uh, and pain and have pain adequately controlled. You can choose any neuromuscular blocker agent of choice in order to facilitate intubation, but you may want to avoid cisaticurium or aticurium. These are associated with histamine release and can potentially worsen bronchospasm. If hypotension does develop during the process of intubation and does not improve with fluids or dopamine, you need to consider pneumothorax, especially if there's worsened hypoxia. Once the patient is intubated, you want to maximize your ventilation strategies to allow optimal oxygenation and optimal ventilation. We prefer the use of pressure support ventilation in the spontaneously breathing patient who is not muscle relaxed. This will allow the patient to exhale as long as they need to. Your PEEP should be uh, set at anything from three to five. You want to allow exhalation. Remember that asthma is a predominantly a ventilatory problem. As you target your gas, your gas exchange, you want to maintain an oxygen saturation greater than 92%. And you want to allow permissive hypercapnia. In fact, in asthma, we actually allow a lower pHs than acceptable than for other lung diseases. In ARDS, we say a targeted pH of 7.25 is acceptable. But for asthma, 7.15 is okay, assuming there is no hemodynamic instability. If your pH were to drop less than 7.15, rather than adjusting the ventilator, if you have adequate oxygenation, we actually recommend treating with THAM when that's preferred over sodium bicarbonate, assuming you have normal renal function. Remember that in asthma, the patient needs to exhale. So you want to avoid hyperventilation. Take into account the prolonged expiratory phase that is needed for exhalation. If they are on pressure control ventilation, allow a lower respiratory rate so that they can exhale, typically somewhere between 8 to 10, 8 to 12 breaths per minute. Consider deflating the cuff on the endotracheal tube that will allow for further CO2 exchange. This picture um, reflects a flow time curve in a patient with asthma. As you can see, that even beyond four seconds of time, the patient has still not ended their flow. So patients could need eight, nine seconds to fully exhale, and you need to allow them that time, especially if you have them on pressure control ventilation. The asthmatic patient obviously will require sedation. Agitation will result in tachypnea, especially in a child, and this will counteract your expiratory cycle. Cough, coughing and gagging can actually lead to large changes in airway pressure and risk leak syndromes. Ketamine has been shown to be a good agent to sedate asthmatics, again, because of its bronchodilatory effects and as a sedative. In the asthmatic who is not improving despite a ventilator uh, strategy, do not delay the use of long-acting neuromuscular blockers if you're unable to get adequate gas exchange. When the vent settings reach a pressure support of 25 to 30, if you have inadequate gas exchange, you need to, consideration, to consider initiation of inhaled gases. Inhaled anesthetics. What I'd like to talk about now is the use of inhaled gases in patients with asthma. There is very little, we talked a little bit about Heliox already, and there's very little literature of using Heliox in the intubated asthmatic. Um, we know that and when they're this sick, a limiting factor is going to be hypoxia. Though some uh, authors have used Heliox in the intubated asthmatic and showed improvement in gas exchange. But when asthma therapy um, is failing at this point, we recommend the use of isoflurane. As we know, isoflurane as an inhaled anesthetic, effective uh, sedative, 
but it also has very potent bronchodilatory effects. Within this institution and in some anecdotal literature experience, we have good experience with the use of it and we know it's effective. The side effects do include hypotension, arrhythmias, and in patients who are susceptible, there's a risk of malignant hyperthermia. And so a good history as to whether the risk does exist in, in patients should be undertaken prior to the initiation. When we administer isofluorine, we titrate it for the improvement in gas exchange with the hopes of also lowering the ventilator settings. The typical dose is 0.5%, and we increase it by 0.2% as necessary. It does work very quickly, so titration can happen quickly. We do wean slower so that we don't get a rebound bronchospastic at 0.1%. After you reach greater than 2%, you are more likely to have hemodynamic side effects, which include the hypotension. But again, it's a potent uh, 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 bronchodilator and can be used in extreme cases of refractory critical asthma. Causes of cardiac arrest. What can lead to cardiac arrest and asthma if they're already intubated? We talked already about the hyperinflation, which can result in the cardiac tamponade physiology. They're always at risk at these high settings with air trapping of tension pneumothorax. SVT can occur when you are on high dose beta agonist therapy. And we actually recommend avoiding adenosine, which one of the side effects of adenosine is causing severe bronchospasm in a susceptible patient. So we do prefer the use of vagal maneuvers or verapamil in this setting. Rarely VTAP of the AFib can occur. And lastly, profound acidosis. We do find that some of our patients for unclear reasons will have lactic acids that are in the three, four, five, six range in the setting of severe asthma. We believe that this may be some effect of turbidoline or it may just be hypoperfusion from either hypovolemia or worker breathing. Summary. So in summary, what I've hopefully have been able to denote to you is that there's a large spectrum of management in critical asthma. Many of the therapies are not evidence-based, but they do have good physiologic evidence for their efficacy. A standardized approach to escalation of therapy and weaning of therapy should help improve critical asthma outcomes. In, in patients who have severe asthma, who are unresponsive to therapy, should be started on terbutaline, and the administration of steroids should continue on the Q6-hour dosing. Finally, in, in patients who are not improving on their terbutaline or steroid therapy, the use of Heliox or BiPAP may provide as a bridge to prevent intubation in patients who maybe have um, progressed to respiratory failure. Though we know the data for the benefit is insufficient, um, the risk of intubation are higher. In the intubated asthmatic, you want to use strategies that will promote exhalation. You want to use a judicious use of sedation and have low respiratory rates. And you want to allow permissive hypercapnia to prevent barotrauma. That concludes our video on strategies for critical asthma. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.